Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 this morning. Genesis chapter 1, it is uh, what is recognized in our nation as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's the nearest Sunday to uh, when Roe v. Wade was decided by the Supreme Court 44 years ago. And uh, it's a day that is set aside in our culture, or at least an attempt to set aside this day, to consider uh, the sanctity of human life. And obviously that, that applies in a number of ways. It, it certainly applies to abortion uh, as infanticide, um, but it certainly would also apply to genocide uh, or assisted suicide, uh, now legal in five states uh, in the United States. Um, euthanasia, uh, the unwilling at times uh, killing of someone who's deemed medically unviable or lacking quality in life. These kinds of one-off Sundays, and, and what I mean by that is our tendency here at Kennelly Road is preach book by book, um, and so it's, it's actually very rare that we would step out of that pattern and do something different. Uh, I, I personally strongly prefer expositional preaching and book by book preaching. I'll be honest with you, pastorally and as a preacher, one-off sermons are astoundingly difficult uh, to do. Uh, it's, it's, you have 66 books, okay, what do we, what do, we do um, here? And yet, uh, Darren and I both are convinced that there's enough value and reasoning uh, to, to do Sundays like today. So beginning next Sunday, we'll, be in second, we'll start in 2 Corinthians, our journey through 2 Corinthians. But for this morning, want to consider uh, from a biblical perspective some ways we should think about sanctity of human life. And, and so what we're going to do this morning is, a, is really a little bit of a theology of the value of life and, um, and help us to understand and maybe change our thinking for some and maybe seat our thinking deeper, sink it deeper, uh, like a pylon to the, to the bedrock of the way we should think about the value of life and why we should think about it, the way Christendom proclaims the value of every human life. You know, there are some problems that are so big that any attempt to tackle them feels like eating an elephant or another uh, phrase, charging hell with a water gun, uh, or the old Texas phrase, charging hell with a bucket of ice water. The horrible condition of being part of a nation uh, that has legalized the horrific practice of abortion and exported it around the globe. We, we are not the nation with the highest abortion rates. That is reserved uh, for Russia, uh, some 56 out of every 1,000 women in Russia have abortions. Uh, the number in the United States hovers around 16 per 1,000. When we look at it, uh, 44 years ago, Roe v. Wade decided, and so all of my conscious life uh, growing up in church, hearing about Roe v. Wade and uh, being engaged with that by my parents and other teachers, uh, it seems like very little progress has been made in uh, returning our country to a position that abortion should be illegal. When wars linger this long, the war against abortion, when, when wars go on this long, it is our tendency, it is our propensity to look for a quick answer. Uh, we might think of it as a push-button answer. Hit this button and it's going to stop it. Uh, you might think World War II, wars lingering, and they make the incredibly difficult decision, we're going to drop the bomb, we're going to end this thing once and for all, uh, two bomb drops in a few, within a few weeks and World War II is ended. And it's our tendency when wars linger to, to want that, to crave a quick solution, a fast answer. And, and I'll be honest, I, most of my growing up years in an Americanized church, uh, that push button has been every four years. Uh, push this button every four years, and that will end it. That vote pro-life, and that's going to end the practice of abortion. If we could finally get the right people in power, that would end it. Unfortunately, the facts deny that reality. And as Benjamin Franklin said, facts are stubborn things. You might be shocked to know that abortion rates fall the steepest in our country when actually liberals are in power, not conservatives. In fact, under Ronald Reagan and George Bush, the abortion rates hovered around 25 uh, per 1,000 women, 25, 26. Uh, by the time Bill Clinton comes into office, they start dropping radically down to 19 or so. They fell, they hovered again at another plateau under the second George Bush, and then 
fell again steeply under uh, Barack Obama. That seems to deny what would seem obvious. Pro-life presidents should equal pro-life movement. The fact of the matter is then, I, I, I was told my whole life, put the right president in, they'll choose the right Supreme Court justices. Conservative presidents have chosen 15 Supreme Court justices since Roe v. Wade. 15. Liberal presidents have chosen five. And the conservative ensconced justices have yet to delay, deny, or minimize abortion. I'm not saying don't vote pro-life. I'll be honest with you. In my biblically, what I hope to be biblically informed conscience, I I can't find it in me to ever vote for anyone other than someone's pro-life. My only point with those statistics is if we believe that's the answer, we're wrong. It's not a push-button answer. It's not going to stop it. It hasn't. It could be a means that God uses and Praise God if he does, but we've got to be honest enough to say for 44 years it isn't. In fact, the therapeutic abortion law in 1967 signed into practice by the governor of California moved the number of abortions in California from 518 in 1966 to over 100,000 a year by the early 70s. Ronald Reagan signed that law. He did it violating his own moral conscience, He did it for political expediency. He did it for political power. And he regretted it the rest of his life and the rest of his career. He said it's the one piece of legislation that he regretted ever doing. He did it under pressure of others. See, they were convinced that if he vetoed the bill, it would get signed into law anyway, and that would make him look weak. And they said, you'll be able to control it if you add some language. He was devastated to realize That's not what happened at all. We need something to change in our nation. We we need uh, supremely prayer. Uh, We need God to act. We we do need politically right thinking, and by that I mean biblically informed thinking about politics and culture. We need support for adoption. We need support for orphanages. But all of this feels like charging hell with a water pistol. And, and so we definitely feel like we need something also, something else. We need something more. 17 years after Ronald Reagan signed the therapeutic abortion law, he's then president. Uh, he's entering his second term. And he uh, signs a presidential decree making Sunday, the Sunday closest to the uh, anniversary of Roe v. Wade, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. If we're honest about it, when he signed the therapeutic abortion law, we can actually look at numbers of lives lost. That's hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it, right? 518 to 100,000? Like, those are hard numbers, humanly, to think about. But it would not be too much to say we can actually assign lives lost to the therapeutic abortion law But making these kinds of Sundays, Sanctity of Human Life Sundays, frankly, just seems largely symbolic. We can't assign lives saved in the same way to this symbolic action. And so the Sanctity of Human Life has been honored by every conservative president since Ronald Reagan, and it has gone without notice by every liberal president since Ronald Reagan. So why does he do it? Why why does Ronald Reagan do this symbolic act? Why does he, sitting in his Oval Office, uh, frankly, pick up a water gun, fill it with water, and go charging into hell with a symbolic action that is just going to cost him support and votes? He does it because by that point in his life, he saw clearly what abortion was, and he was no longer willing in his moral and ethical conscience to give credence to the murder of a child in utero. He did it because he believed on a core level that he had to stand for something. He believed on a core level that even if the gesture was symbolic, it was right to do the right thing. And, and I can't think of anything better than Sanctity of Human Life coming after Ecclesiastes. Learning that we do the right glorious thing because it's the right glorious thing. And we embrace life because God has given it. 
And we don't do it for pragmatic reasons. We, we don't look at it and say, well, well I'm going to, one plus one is going to equal two because it doesn't always. We, we don't say uh, the end justifies the means. We understand that it doesn't from Ecclesiastes. We understand a biblical perspective on life is to seize life and embrace all of it as God's people. And so if we were to look at a guy, if, if, we were, if it wasn't hellfires, but we were to drive down Kennelly Road and we were to see a house filled with flames, we would hope to see fire engines showing up and uh, ambulances. And what if as we drove by, all we saw was a guy loading up a power soaker and rushing towards the fire? We'd think he was crazy. We'd have to ask, who does that guy think he is? Why would he do that? And so... Why as Christians would we still honor sanctity of human life Sunday? Why as Christians 44 years into a war that we have to admit we have lost? If the goal of the war was to return abortion to an illegal practice, we've lost so far. It's not over because we know God writes the last chapter, but honesty would dictate to us, facts would dictate to us, the methodology hasn't worked. So why do it? Because this morning we want to understand that bearing God's image calls us to treat all human life with equal value. We pick up the power soaker, we pick up the water pistol, and we continue to squirt away. We continue to stand for what's right and what's true because we're made in the image of God. We continue to proclaim that whether you're elderly and you our society says you can't contribute, you still have a right to live because your life is sacred and valuable. Or whether you're an infant in utero, you have a right to live and your life is sacred and valuable. Or whether you're a teenager and you're handicapped and someone says, what's their quality of life? You have a right to live because your life has value. Well, we believe that as Christians, not philosophically, we believe it because it's what the Bible tells us. We, we stand on the truth of the word on this matter. And we want to understand this morning, what does it really mean to be image bearers? Because that is at the core of the Christian belief, the righteous belief that all life has value. Now, just to be clear, science is on our side, right? Like uh, the reality is bioethicists, and, and scientists largely, almost wholesale, agree that life begins at conception. Science is on our side. Uh, therefore, morality and ethics are on our side. Eugenics, the practice of selectively killing people, is the stuff of fascists and Nazis, right? That we, we have history on our side. We have science on our side. But as Christians, those are affirmations. It's a little bit like uh, the Christian faith believing for decades and centuries that the Assyrian Empire existed, while the rest of the world said, no, they don't, and then they discover them in archaeology. All archaeology did was affirm what we already proclaimed. Science and history simply affirm what we already believe, but it's, it, it's critical that we be convinced biblically. I think it's critical for a number of reasons, but not the least of which the number one driving factor for abortion in the United States is economic. When people, the vast majority of abortions, when people are in a spot where they are concerned or don't believe they will be able to provide for their child or their quality of life will be damaged by the arrival of a now their mouth to feed, that is the primary driving factor for abortion. Proven. Unfortunately, that same thinking infects the life of the church. The, you add to that the sense of shame attached with an unwanted pregnancy or maybe a pregnancy out of time, maybe an unwed pregnancy. You add into this economic thinking that so easily infects the church that, that our goal is to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and, and the shame factor and the reality is abortion infects the church. Having worked in a college, Christian college setting, I had numbers of encounters with and conversations with Young people where either the boyfriend had helped to pay for or the girlfriend had gone and gotten an abortion and they were in Christian college. They, the sense of shame and 
what, I'm going to lose my degree and I'm going to get kicked out. And, and they also embraced it. Why? Because they were, had been infected with the thinking of the world that money and life and reputation were more important than an innocent or vulnerable one. What that tells us is that the church must do a much better job of understanding biblically this concept of image bearing because it's what's at its core. It's only through understanding image bearing that we can help people understand shame is answered in the gospel, not in perfect living. That we are all sinners and we are in desperate need of a savior and, and the shame that we see in the garden exposed with nakedness is answered with a savior who hung naked upon a cross taking your shame so that he might robe you in Christ's righteousness. The answer is understanding the image of God. We are not primarily on mission to get a degree or to make money or to be successful in the world's eyes. We are on mission to be image bearers. And so bearing God's image calls us. It calls us to treat all human life with equal value. And so we want to unpack that this morning. And, and so we'll look at three primary texts, although we'll look at a number of texts of Scripture as we move along this morning. But first of all, let's go right to the start in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, we have this amazing moment of the creation of the first human life. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him male, and female, he created them. All of humanity bears the image of God. An image reflects the original. An image is a statue of the real, a photograph of a real thing, a mirror. I like how Elizabeth Garn said it, a Christian author. She said, images are reflections, and that's what we were crafted to be, reflections of God here on earth. We are created to be signposts pointing others to him, mirrors displaying his character to the world. When people see us, they see aspects of God. What does it mean, if we're going to boil it down, what does it mean that every person is an image bearer of God? And this transcends gender. Uh, it, it's not you're an image bearer if you're a man or you're an image bearer if you're a woman. No, uh, men and women are both image bearers. It's not ethnicity or culture. It's not that whites or blacks or, or Hispanics or Asians, they, each group is an image bearer. No, each human life, every human life, it's not those that are perfectly whole physically, or perfectly hold mentally are image bearers. Uh, you can be deficient mentally. You can be handicapped physically. All of human life are image bearers. If we were to boil it down, we could put it this way very simply, and I, and I want this seated deep in your thinking. To be an image bearer of God means that you are a mirror of God and his glory. A mirror. You are to reflect God and his glory to everyone around you. And so... If we're walking mirrors, then uh, I think we, we can understand it this way. Uh, we understand it through the lives of children, right? You're a chip off the old block. Uh, the apple doesn't far, far, fall far from the tree. Those are both photos of fathers with their children <laughs> uh, at the same age. I love that shot on the right. I mean, this guy and his five-year-old daughter are dead ringers, right? DNA, genetics are amazing things. We say it when we look at a child and we say uh, they have their father's eyes, they have their grandmother's hair, their grandpa's walk, or their mother's smile. There's a real likeness between two people. These are concrete ways of imaging other people. Uh, when, my, when I send my kids up and they spend a week with their grandparents in Greenville, and, and they, if they attend my grandparents' church, and they've attended there for, I don't know, 40 years or so, and so... Uh, they raise their children, and people see my daughter. They say she's a little Beth Ann. And um, when, when my family, you look at my youngest photos, and you look at my father as a little boy, he's a dead ringer. And my oldest son, he has so much Fedorov in him, and he's tall and, and lean, and he's built like them. And, and there's no mistaking, the genetics go forward. And this is what we do when we, when we see a baby, right? Now, I always, I'll be honest with you, pastorally, I get to visit uh, well, I used to be able to go visit newborn babies in the hospital and hold them, and, 
and everybody's like, oh, who does they look like? I'm just going to be honest with you. All newborn babies look like little old men. I can't, I don't know, right? You got to give me a few weeks to figure out. But then that's always a common conversation. Do they look like mom? Do they look like dad? Who do they look like? And, And so we need to understand image bearing in this way. God is putting his fingerprints on us. He's putting his mark upon us, and we are literally walking mirrors. And we can think of it in three ways this morning, biblically. First of all, in our reality, our very existence, we are image bearers of God. We can, we can put it this way, we think. God thinks and we think. We are reasoning creatures. You see there in Genesis where God in the Trinity has this conversation, let us make man in our image. And, and so there is a reasoning to God in the Trinity and we bear that in our reality. We have volition God makes a decision, this is what I'm going to do. We are decision makers, we make decisions. God has personhood, and we are image bearers of that reality. We are walking representatives of a creator who thinks, and who feels, and who makes decisions. On top of that, though, we are spiritual beings, unlike any of the rest of his creation. We are, in, at the moment of our conception, we are immortal from that point forward. Whether you're a believer or you're lost, you will exist forever on from that point. You will either spend eternity in hell or eternity in heaven, but you will go on and on and on. And that is a reflection. God is a spirit being as well. And so God has personhood and he's trinity and, and he's spiritual and man is material and immaterial. We recognize this even when a person dies and you see the life go out of them and we can put makeup on a corpse and we can dress it just so and common conversation at visitations is whether or not the funeral home did a good job and whether they look just like them or not, right? We've all seen bad ones and we've seen good ones, but it's easily recognizable that's not them because the immaterial, the soul, has departed from them. From our conception, we are these immortal beings. And so we image God that way. In our reality, we image God in our relationships. You see it in the Trinity where God is having this conversation. And so there's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And there is a community and there's relational connection. He creates Adam first and he does not say that it's good yet because he is alone. And he doesn't want humanity to be alone. He has created us to be relational people. And so he brings Eve into the picture and he creates the first community. And the first community is found in the home and in the marriage. We see it in the life of the church. When you are saved, you are not saved to be isolated. You are saved and you are brought into community. One of the languages of the gospel is that we, people are reconciled to God and to others. Part of the dominant theme of our Christian life is that we are people who when we sin against one another, and we do, We ask forgiveness and we repent and we restore relationship with one another. We are relational beings because God is a relational being. And then we see it in our responsibilities biblically. God designs us, and and you can actually see this clearest from the text. He he wants to create male and female. But if you see verse 28, what does he tell them immediately? God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I love that because work is a blessing. Responsibility is a blessing. Uh, God created us to image him for ongoing work. God is continuing to work right now. Uh, The Gospels tell us that Jesus holds everything together. By him all things exist and consist. He he is the immortal, eternal, all-wise, omniscient, omnipotent God who holds everything together. He works and he gives us work to do and responsibilities to fulfill. Primarily, we are given the responsibility to mirror and image him as a caretaker, as a steward, as a creative thinker who is a problem solver. I was meditating on this this week because very clearly part of the creation design was to be a problem solver, right? Uh, And there's people in our culture that are uniquely gifted that way. My father is one of them. They, they just find all kinds of ways to fix things. And, and we joke with my dad because his first name is Jerry. And you've heard of jury rigged. 
And so we always said it's jerry-rigged, like he could fix things. My mom's washing machine broke, and so he changed the size of the pulley on the back of it. He is the original Tim Allen, and, and so when he changed the pulley size, it increased, frankly, the torque value of the washing machine, and when you turn the washing machine on, it would literally hop across the floor, turning all my, my mom's clothes and sheets into knots. She was not happy about this. My dad, I just, I'll never forget my dad just crying, laughing so hard at this. He's, he's a fixer, and I was thinking about this week because part of the way we're designed is to problem solve, and, and we tend to think of problems like evil but sometimes problems are a wonderful thing because they give opportunities. I wonder if in heaven, what it will be like that will problem solve and advance and creatively fix. God finds creative solutions and he calls us to do this. We are his image bearers as we steward gardens, whether they are gardens of people's hearts or of their works or of their home or of their relationships. We image God by being responsible people. What we do then is inseparably linked to who we are. Now that's, that, I don't think that is a deep concept, quite frankly, right? Who we are drives what we do. I, I, I would tend to think that's, that's basic. Unfortunately, there is a rising trend as Eastern mysticism makes its way into our culture increasingly. Uh, one guy, his name's Andy Puttycomb, he has created his own mental health app. And Andy Puttycomb actually argues against that concept. He says, you're not actually who you are, or who you are is not what you do, and it's not what you think, and it's not. He doesn't want you to feel bad about what you do, or how you feel, or what you think. He wants to divorce that from you. So if you're in a job situation, one illustration he provides, if you're in a job situation, you have a boss, he shows up, he humiliates you, maybe steals your uh, credit for a work you've done, and you have this fleeting thought, I'd really like to see him fall off the top of a building. Andy Puttycomb says, don't be depressed by that thought. Hey, you didn't act on it. Really, you're still a very good person. And that thought is not revelatory of who you are at all. And that's incredibly appealing, right? That's appealing because that, per that kind of thinking permits our culture to say, I can act, think, and feel in very evil, wicked ways, but that doesn't define who I am. In other words, very good people can do very bad things. It's actually at a philosophical core of what permits people to do things like abortion, knowing full well they're murdering an infant. Well, I'm still a really good person. And all that is well and good and appealing until you open your Bible and Jesus tells us you'll give an account for everything you think and even a word spoken out of hand. The Bible holds us that what we do is an outflow. It's a fruit of who we are. This is why image bearing is so critical, because we must understand who are we. Who is that guy that will charge into the fires of hell, squirting a squirt gun, because that's what he's supposed to do. It is the one who believes they are a mirror of the image of God. We are created to be mirrors of his God and his glory, and our reality, and our relationships, and our responsibilities. What is the importance of mirrors, though? Because it fixes our identity. It, it, it grounds, it concretes who we really are, first and foremost, as a people on mission. You and I are created with a purpose in mind. What is your goal? Who are you? You are to be on mission to declare God by how you live, how you act, to show him and to speak him into the lives of others. Image bearing is our purpose. What is the purpose of humanity? to bear God's image. This is what establishes the value of every human. There is no human that is not an image bearer. It's not defined by gender, race, or ethnicity. The sacredness of every man, woman, boy, girl, from the oldest to the youngest, is a God-made mirror to show his glory. The value of a human is not found in their accomplishments or abilities, but in their identity as an image bearer of God. Whether it is the freewheeling joy that you see so commonly in someone with Down syndrome, whether it is the intense academics of the scholar, whether it is the utter neediness and yet instant sweetness of a newborn infant, whether 
It is the elderly reflecting on a life lived. They are all image bearers, mirroring to us God and his glory. To slaughter an image bearer is the highest of crimes. It is the deepest of evils. To rid this earth of mirrors of God and his glory is a profound error. The implication is significant. We are intended to showcase the reality of God to others around us. They don't need to see you or me. They need to see God reflected. When people don't understand image bearing, they don't understand how to live life itself. In a world where people forget that they're image bearers, it's a little bit like that great British baking show. And, and, and those of you who are familiar with it, it's this baking show competition. And the, the, at the midpoint, they always do what's called a technical challenge. And, and these are very accomplished bakers, right? Like these are the kind of people that, that just blow us out of the water, right? They make me feel like I, I don't know how to boil an egg. But the technical challenge, they bring it out and it's, and it's basic ingredients and it's a stripped down recipe. And, and to be honest with you, part of the amusement of the show is watching these people who are otherwise very accomplished just absolutely butcher these things because without the right directions and without the right instructions and for most of them they try to make things they've never even seen before they end up with a huge mess one lady decided to try to imitate it herself and it was a tennis cake most people thought that she had made some kind of guacamole that's what mine would look like and i think the reality is in american culture and really in the world because image bearing is so broken People don't know what it's supposed to look like at all. They don't know what it looks like to mirror the creator. In the absence of image bearers, in the absence of image bearers doing their work of mirroring God and his glory, where can our society turn? And because the fact is, we are marred images. We are not these pure mirrors. Sin enters the world and very quickly, the images are marred. The mirrors are broken. And so mirrors become warped. And we are actually much more like funhouse mirrors trying to mirror God than anything else. Can you imagine a person who had been born blind, never seen anything, and then suddenly they have sight, and they're set in front of a funhouse warped mirror, and they t they're told to draw a picture of themselves? What would that look like? What disaster would ensue from that? I, th I think Steve Lawson does a great job, and he says that being a marred or twisted image bearer as a result of depravity of sin in our lives, he said it's a bit like a wrecked car, a totaled car. It's a bit like going to the junkyard and seeing this accordioned car that's been hit from the front and the back. Now, the car still has four wheels and a steering wheel, still has an engine, it still has paint on it, doors and, and a radio inside of it, and so... At its essence, it's a car, but we all know functionally, visually, it is a terrible representation of a car. This is what you and I are like in our image bearing. We are twisted in our reality. Ephesians 4, 17 through 18 tells us that we are warped in even the way we think. We're told, don't think like the lost man thinks who's broken in his reasoning. Lost people don't reason rightly. We are warped in our image bearing. And in Romans, you see the ultimate warping of, this, of their thinking. Well, they will worship the creation rather than the creator. We are warped in our relationships. John 3, 19 tells us we don't love rightly. We're at odds with God and others. In Romans 8, 7 through 8, we see that we are opposed to God. In Ephesians 2, we need God's reconciling work. And so here we have been created to, to mirror God and to be his image bearers in our reality and our relationships. And they're both very broken by sinfulness. And our responsibilities, Isaiah 64, 6, tells us that even the good things we would do are unrighteous and wicked. We are to mirror God so that we and others would see more of him and his glory in humanity. But there's all this warping, there's all this twisting. We know this, bad originals produce worse copies. It's actually Jesus' point when he confronts the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were all about getting people to follow them. They wanted a followership to affirm their successfulness. 
That's part of the reason they hated Jesus so much because he had this broad base, massive following, and they felt like they were, he was encroaching on their little kingdom. They wanted followers, and, and Jesus condemns them, and he says seven woes to them, and he calls them hypocrites and whitewashed tombs, and he condemns their, their way of living, and it kind of culminates in Matthew 23 when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a follower. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Earlier, he tells them they put burdens on men's backs that they themselves won't carry, and they don't lift with one finger. They proclaim a law that they themselves don't follow. Bad originals produce worse copies. It leaves us in a terrible state. Because if Genesis 1 is right, and we are to be image bearers, and we are to be mirrors of God and his glory, and the rest of the Bible is right that that image has been warped and twisted, and bad originals make bad copies, what are we supposed to do? The reality is then it seems like God's mission on earth to showcase him and his glory seems to be broken. This devastating predicament drives us to call out for another answer. And God gives it. And for that, we can turn to our second text and we can look to Colossians. And so turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, we see a perfect image. An answer to the warped mirrors. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Paul writes this, He, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now Jesus is and isn't at the same time the same as us as an image bearer. He is in his humanity. But his humanity is the perfect sinless image bearer. He's also far from us in the sense that Jesus is truly God. He declares God and deity to us consistently and constantly. Why do the authors of the New Testament, and, and Jesus is referenced and we see image bearing, show up in Hebrews and in James and in Paul's writing in Romans, Galatians, here in Colossians. John writes in his gospel, referencing Christ, declaring God to us. Why do they link him to this image bearing? Because they understood all that we've looked at so far. Humanity was intended to mirror God in his glory, but it's warped. And God was not content for this world to live and exist trying to match warped images. And so he sends Jesus as the perfect image bearer. He is the true north of our confused compasses. He is the perfect image bearer who is our living example. He says that we are to lead like he does, not like the Gentiles do. He says that we are to love like he does, not like you do with your natural affections. He says that we are to serve as he serves. He says we are to minister as he does in his power and not in our own. He tells us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus is the perfect image bearer. But a perfect example is not enough. Because of the impact of sin and depravity. Remember, we are warped and we are twisted in our reality, our relationships, and our responsibilities. Suddenly, though, Jesus answers this warping with his own power. First of salvation, Jesus comes to rescue broken image bearers. We have in the Latin the imago Dei, but it is warped and twisted, and Jesus comes to set it right. Jesus answers this warping by rescuing us, by saving us, by restoring us, if we could put it this way, to our right mind. I used to be in a church where we had an elderly saint, old sister Glenn, 
She always brought a tambourine, and she could not keep time with the music. Made for interesting worship dynamics. But old Sister Glenn, if the opportunity was given to give testimony, she'd always get up and testify, and she'd start her testimony uh, always with a similar kind of phrases. I thank my God that I woke up this morning in my right mind, is the way she would testify. In Ephesians, when we're told to not think the way the Gentiles think, and Romans, when we see how lost man worships creation instead of creator, we understand that salvation in one sense is a restoration of our right minds. It's amazing when you get saved, suddenly things that you didn't see rightly before, you start to look at them in a new light because you start to view them through lenses of the Holy Spirit. That begins at salvation. It reaffirms our reality. It gives us purpose for living. I'm here to mirror God in His glory. It, it reclaims our relationships, reconciling us. And you see, even in Colossians, Jesus has come to do a reconciliation work. He wants to set us right with God and with others. And we can't ever claim rightness with God if we're not pursuing rightness with others. We must love God and love others. And Jesus does that work. And suddenly the Spirit is implanted in us. And 1 John tells us a key marker of a believer is someone who loves others. And it's not just others. It's our neighbors, people we wouldn't even want to know or be with. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Who's my neighbor, Jesus? And so he casts someone who's ethnically racially and religiously different from you and he says that's the one you love and then he presses it even further and says the test the mark of a believer is one who's filled with love love for who love for your enemies this is sarcasm i've seen such an overwhelming love from believers for their enemies over the last two weeks we wrestle not against flesh and blood this is spiritual warfare, and the weapons of our warfare are not human. Remember, Pilate asked him, are you really a king? And Jesus says, if my kingdom was of this world, my followers would fight. But it's not. Jesus comes to restore reality and our relationships, but our responsibilities as well. In our salvation, we are given a renewed purpose and a work to do. We're called to be about he says he's about his father's business and we're called to join him on his father's business. He takes guys that are fishermen and makes them fishers of men. Jesus is the ultimate example of what happens when sinners forget the image of God in man. When people forget that someone is an image bearer, they have to dehumanize them. This was at the core of eugenics, an idea that drove not just Nazi fascism, but also uh, mid 18th, 19th century slavery heading back into the 1500s, you have to dehumanize. They're less than human. If you're going to subjugate someone, another person, or slaughter them, whether they're a Jew, a gypsy, whether they're black or Asian or white, if you've got to, you have to dehumanize them. They can't be God's image bearer. They certainly can't be your equal. And so you dehumanize them, and you find this expression as they deal with Jesus, and it's actually a stunning thing, because we know that Jesus is the perfect image bearer, right? He is the image of God, perfect in his humanity, perfect in his deity, absolutely sinless, and yet they murder him. How do they murder an innocent one? Listen to how Isaiah describes what they do to him. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. When they took Jesus into the courtyard and they rip his beard out and they beat him mercilessly and they whip him vicious, viciously, what Isaiah is telling us is that they had so broken his body, he didn't even look human anymore. They had to destroy the image before they could kill the man. They have to make him less than human. It would be almost like someone saying, oh, I know that all the DNA and genetic code is in that life at conception. And I know it has a heartbeat. And I know it can think. And we now even know it can feel pain. But it's not human yet. You must destroy the image bearing to give freedom in your conscience 
to murder. And this is what they do to the ultimate innocent one. Denying that every life is the, in the image of God is what gives the freedom to treat human life as without value, based on its usefulness or even its convenience. Bearing God's image calls us to treat all of human life with equal value. But God does not leave us there. Instead, he comes that he might restore warped images. And first of all, we just need to live in the reality, we, we are working in a maze of mirrors. <laughs> when we understand this role of image bearing in your life and in my life, this whole theme of the Bible that's built around it, it starts showing up everywhere. But, but honestly, we're a little bit in a uh, carnival funhouse mirror maze with warped mirrors showing up everywhere. And, and lots of what the Bible says about what life is like here in an image bearing is negative. You see it in two key ways. In James, he says it this way, with it we bless, he's talking about our tongues, the way we use our mouths, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Why is it wrong to curse another person. And, and when we say curse, I think it'd be easy for us to Americanize that and English it and say it's using profanity words against someone. But that's not the essence of what it's saying. The essence of what James is saying is the desired destruction of another person. It's verbalizing a want for them to fail, to fall apart, to be humiliated, to be destroyed. I hope they get what's theirs. And a heart that is not driven, and in a mind that's not driven, that God might bring consequences into a person's life, that they might see their need of salvation. But rather even that God might bring consequences into someone's life so you feel more justified. To prove that you're right, and they're wrong. To curse someone else is to look upon someone else that is made in God's image and in that moment, treat them as less than a mirror of God and his glory. Every human being, every human being bears the image of God. And thereby, there is no human being who deserves your or my curse. To do so is to deny what God has done in us and through us. And when you see Jesus hanging on the cross and he proclaims, forgive them for they know not what they do, Jesus is illustrating what it really looks like when someone bears the image of God and they're being wronged so horrendously. A gracious spirit of willing forgiveness. He makes the argument then that we can't be people who worship Jesus here and curse others. You can't. It's hypocrisy. It's wicked. The ultimate expression, obviously, is in murder. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by men Man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Ancient kings understood this. Uh, there was a story a few years ago, a British museum had the lower part to a steel, S-T-E-L-E, of an Assyrian, ancient Assyrian king. And they discovered the upper half that somehow had passed through a family and nobody knows how it got there. But, and there was an auction to reunite the pieces. Here was the problem, though. This particular Syrian king, and it's not unique to him, there's others, but just for the sake of this example, he had actually had inscribed on this steel, uh, this raised image out of, out of stone, a curse. And the curse essentially was this. Cursed be anyone who removes this image from this temple or who breaks it or desecrates it in any way. And, and they, they called down a curse of some demon god of the Assyrians. And so the joke, the British Museum decided they were not going to participate in this auction. 
they don't have any parts of this mess. And so, uh, of course, media was like, oh, they're afraid of the curse. You know, this is like the curse of the mummy almost come to life. But it's interesting, why would the Assyrian king do that? And this was not an uncommon practice. Well, he wanted to do that because he understood exactly what the Bible tells us. And so we even get this in our culture. And it's this concept, to destroy the image of someone is to wage war against their personhood. Not just their ideas. You see it in modern day. So when you see the graffiti on Hitler, are they just graffitiing a painting? Is it just about his ideas? When, when Saddam Hussein is overthrown or when the, the, wall, the, the iron wall falls and communism begins to fail, do you think they were tearing down statues of Lenin and Stalin to, because they said, oh, the ideas are gone away? This is a philosophy that we disagree with? Or was it that this image gave them the opportunity to destroy personhood? If you go to a shooting range, and you go to pick out targets. I love shooting guns. I love targets and shooting and all this. And you can go and you can pick out targets. And for a while, I don't know if they're still, if it's still available now. For a while there, you can pick out targets that look just like Osama bin Laden. For you to put them up and take shots at it. You know, famously, it's someone taking a picture. And maybe, maybe in a moment of anger or resentment, they got a photo of an old boyfriend or old girlfriend. Or maybe even a spouse that abandoned them or left them or there was animosity. And they scratch out the image or cut out the image. I've seen photos before of families that have been broken apart. And, uh, and they still want the photos of the kids. And you'll look at the photo and, and there's like a circle cut out of someone's face. Why do we do that? Is it just about the idea of the person? We, I mean, we all have to be honest. No, it's not. It's because we get exactly what the Assyrian kings get, exactly what the Bible says, exactly what we've seen in culture. To tear down images and statues is more than an assault on an idea. It's an assault on that person. Even if they've been dead for hundreds of years. This is what I would do to you if I could. Or this is what I think should be done to you. And so when they hang people on effigy or destroy statues or destroy images, they understand the same concept of what the Bible is holding true. To assault an image bearer is an assault upon God himself. That's what the Bible says. God does not rejoice when we curse others. God certainly, certainly does not rejoice in the murder of others. And it takes us then to our third text in Colossians. You can stay right there in Colossians 3. If Jesus comes in our salvation to do this process, the process only begins and it culminates though in our sanctification. In Colossians 3, 5 through 10, we have this, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Jesus has come to be the perfect image bearer in front of us. He's come in our salvation to be the perfect image bearer to us. He has come and in our sanctification, he is restoring wrecked cars and he is straightening warped mirrors. Your sanctification process and my sanctification process is a lifelong process of God working out the warping of your mirror so that you might image him to the others. In this world and land set on fire from hell, where babies' lives are bought and sold for convenience and for parts, we need more than a water gun. Do you know what it feels like we really need? We need more, we already know we need more than voting. We need more than adoption. We need more than caring for orphans. We need more than economic renewal of the inner city and the rural community and the Rust Belt because economics drives most abortions. We need more than philosophical ideas. We need more than protests. We need more than sit-ins. We need something more. I'm not saying we don't do any of those other things. 
I didn't say that they all should be fruits of the main thing, which is imaging God. But we need more, don't we? You know what we need? We need Jesus everywhere. We need Jesus in the clinic. We're in California right now. They operate seven days a week and 370 babies will be murdered today. We need Jesus in those rooms, don't we? Somehow compelling, convincing, breaking machines sovereignly to rescue lives. We need Jesus walking the halls of our highest seats of government. We need Jesus showing what it means to love and lead and serve. We need Jesus showing the value of every human life. We need Jesus caring for the disaffected, for the poor mother wrestling with whether she should kill her baby or not so she doesn't have to feed another mouth. We need Jesus speaking truth to the imprisoned to help restore their souls first, and then when they're released, that they might be restored to lead their homes and their families for another leading, contributing cause to abortion is lack of fathers in the home. We need Jesus in the hospital holding drug-addicted babies. Jesus in the orphanage is caring for the abandoned. We need an army of image bearers. And that's exactly what Paul says God is on mission doing. He is restoring his image in and through you and me. We need prayer. We need adoption. We need care and pursuit of others. Bearing God's image calls us to treat all of human life with equal value. What can you do? Our culture needs a shift. It's a president. And the last time I checked, the Bible does have a formula for changing the world. It's when a small group of people set on fire by and for the gospel live and speak it to the world around them. I close with this. A text that I often wondered about that did not come into the clarity like it has until this week for me. Jesus has this amazing moment at the end of the Gospel of Matthew where he says that people come before him, sheep will come before him, and he will separate the sheep from the goats, and the sheep are representing believers and the goats are the lost. And he will say, go to my right side or go to my left side, enter my kingdom or enter into hell. And he says something stunning in Matthew 25, 34 through 45. He says this, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And now you can join me and understand what he says next. The king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me because they bear his image. We don't do it because we say, oh, that's Jesus. We care for the disaffected, the poor, the disenfranchised, the vulnerable, the weak, the in utero, and the ones in the senior home long forgotten because they bear his image. Now hear me right. I am convinced that nothing will shift our culture more than an army of image bearers. I, the ship has sailed on voting for me as the answer hear me right doesn't mean i'm going to stop voting pro-life but that ship has long sailed for me i am convinced that this world needs christ everywhere and i'm convinced that we see christ everywhere as jesus's people bear his image in their workplaces in their homes and in their communities everywhere And I'm convinced that that's easy for us to do in the American church for the unborn infant, and it's astoundingly difficult for us to do for people that we would capture as our enemies 
and consider them the enemies of God and withhold from them care and love. And Jesus defines the lost. And he says, to those on his left, depart from me and you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Hear me right. Why do they ask that question? Because they believe they can determine the value of who deserves their care, their love, and their affection. Do you ever categorize people for who deserves or has earned your love, care, affection, your giving, and your sacrifice? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of these least of these, you did not do it to me. By this we are judged, and by this we are blessed. May we understand that as God's image bearers, we have a high calling to treat all human life as having value. It is there that our mission becomes much bigger than ending abortion, than ending genocide, than ending infanticide or assisted suicide. Our mission becomes mirroring the goodness and glory of God as his image bearers. May God restore his image in you and in me 